Welcome to Casted, a popular science podcast from IT University of Copenhagen, where we want to talk about issues related to the foundations of information technology. My name is Toro Husfeld, I'm your host. And when I just said information technology, it's not actually really clear what we mean by this. So this is only our third episode, and we are still trying to, currently focusing a lot on the technical details and administrative details and learning the ropes. I think that's getting better and better. However, we also really want to think about what kind of topics, domains and epistemologies and disciplines are a valid uh, domain for discourse in this. So the first two episodes, I made my life very easy. I was very much inside my comfort zone. First two episodes were me, an algorithm theorist, talking to other algorithm theorists about, about artificial intelligence. So that was very much our comfort zone. And I think there is easily enough material for for 12 or 24 episodes like that, but then we're at the danger of, of digging ourselves into some kind of hole. So the best person to prevent us from actually digging ourselves into a hole is the man who actually wrote a book about uh, bursting these kinds of information bubbles. Our guest today is Vincent Hendricks from University of Copenhagen. Welcome to the show. Thank you, sir. Thank you for having me. So Vincent, you are a philosopher. You did actually publish about artificial intelligence at the beginning. But today you're leading the Center for Bubble Studies at Copenhagen University. So tell us a bit about that. So I'm a professor of formal philosophy, so that basically means that I am a, a computer scientist in disguise. I did my PhD at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh um, on formal learning theory. And one of the things I was studying there was the exchange of information um, when you combine what's called epistemic logic and learning theory. And that led me to a lot of issues about proving convergent theorems for these particular kinds of logics. Can, can you unpack that already? Because there are lots of words here. There is, is there informal philosophy? Well, I mean, no, there's no such thing as, I guess you could say there's something called informal informed philosophy. But when you talk about formal philosophy, really what you're saying is that it's all the places in philosophy in which math or some other technical toolbox will have a grasp. Now, that's a lot of places. So that could be from epistemology to philosophy of science. Say. And there's logic in there. And there is logic. I'm basically a logician. You're a logician. Right. right. So, so that's basically a logician by training. And on the sort of narrow understanding of what logic is, it's the study of valid inferences. But if you look at it in a more broad, modern perspective, really what logic is, is the science of correct information processing. And for that matter, also incorrect information processing. So you take logic to be a much broader term now than what it probably used to be reserved for. Now, one of the things I've been looking at is basically how information exchanges between agents, whether they're computers on one end or humans on the other, uh, will actually get you to have knowledge or not. And so I was proving convergence theorems for uh, various logics that had to do with uh, agents learning new information and when they could make conclusions. So that was basically it. Now, that I've been doing for maybe 20 years by now. And then recently, or more recently, I've become interested in uh, on the intersection between economics and philosophy or logic. And where they, one of the places where they obviously meet is when you look at uh, information that investors have pertaining to investing their, 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 their liquid means in various um, in various uh, assets. And usually when we think about that, we think about monetary assets. So that would be stock, real estate, um, and uh, you know, options or other fantasias of financial products, one way or the mm -hmm. other that we've seen. Now, um, 
when you th and one of the things you get out of that is that you could create bubbles. So we have had a real estate bubble, right? And oh, so there are many versions of the word bubble here, right? There's the yeah. So I'll get to I'll get to. Let's take the canonical version first. Thank so the, you canon very much. the canonical version of a bubble first is a situation in which assets, real estate or stock, what have you, trade at prices systematically that far exceeds the fundamental value of the asset. Housing would be another example. Housing would be an example. Bitcoin, Bitcoin is Possibly probably Bitcoin. an example. We don't know whether right. it's bursting or not. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So that's the understanding that you have standardly of what a bubble is. So it's not already part of economics. My, that, my, my knowledge yes, of economics yes, is very yes, little. Yes. So, so there is already a framework in existence where you can talk about the value of something, Certainly. even though the value is just socially constructed by some kind well, of... It, well, at least we take there to be such a thing as a fundamental value to the asset. Now, we can disagree and agree or disagree about exactly how do you define that. But that's also an issue for economists worrying about it now. But mm -hmm. suppose there is such a thing as a fundamental value mm -hmm. to the asset. Can you overheat it? And yes, we have seen that. Um, mm -hmm. And... Economics have a discipline, or a number of disciplines, actually looking at bubbles. And the reason why that's interesting is because um, if you ask a, a historian of economics as to how many financial bubbles there have been, then they're actually pretty specific about it. So uh, one of the first documented real bubbles was from 1637, to be exact, the Dutch tulip frenzy. Oh, that I know about. Oh, yeah. that's a great example. Yeah. Tell us about okay. that. So I love that. Yes. Okay, so the Dutch tulip frenzy in 1637, uh, or uh, around that time, was basically that all of a sudden everybody wanted to have tulip bulbs. And that was, of course, because that Holland had been, uh, had been a big merchant nation, and so they were getting into the country, and all of a sudden the, the value of these assets rise and rise and rise and rise and rise until uh, sometime in March 1637, where one tulip bulb, just one of them, uh, in ad adjusted for inflation and, uh, and, and, and modern currency, would cost you about a million bucks a piece. For Very one nice. And, uh, and, obviously and they traded like 10 times a day, right? So they shifted right. hand 10 times a day. And, and then the operational value of tulips had actually not changed by no. this because you can't really use them for anything else than making your wife happy or putting them on a grave or... Yeah, yeah. or putting them in big gardens and whatnot. Yes, right? yes. So, so there, was a, there, was a, there was a use for them, but they far exceeded uh, what they were actually traded for. So that, that, entire, uh, that entire frenzy just burst and um, the market crashed and people lost a lot of money. That's usually what happened. And, and s since then, there have been, if you ask uh, historian of economics, between 25 and 30 bubbles. Mm -hmm. up until today, mm -hmm. because there's a set of conditions that had to be met before you have a bubble. It's not like that, you know, some asset trade that I, if I exceeding a value just once, it has to be systemic, systemically, and there's actually a canonical developmental trajectory for many of these bubbles. They sort of follow the same pattern. I see. I see. And the interesting thing about that pattern is that you can actually, it usually is also divided into different phases. So there is what's, so uh, a French usually starts by some investor or a set of investors going there might be something to this asset whether it's whether it's stock or real estate or what have you tulip bubbles or whatnot tulip bubbles or whatnot um and then they start investing and those are called the smart money they know what the value of the asset is mm -hmm. they can also make rational predictions as to what they can sell it for later mm -hmm. and so they're what's called well-informed traders they start buying this asset and all of a sudden slowly but surely the valuation of the asset goes above what it's actually worth. And what happens then is usually that what we call institutional investors, so that could be uh, mortgage funds, it could be mm -hmm. credit unions, it could mm -hmm. be banks, it could be other, actually stump the, jump this bandwagon also. 
once they start to jump this bandwagon, because they have a lot of liquid means to invest with. And so they start investing. And sometimes some of the smart money will actually then, okay, I, the dividend is big enough, I make my, gen, I, I made my, I made my margin, I'm going to sell off. Then you get this little, this little, um, this little bear trap where the value evaluation of the actually drops a little bit. Oh, because and the first group moves out the of the... Yeah, because the smart money sort of pulled out, right? And then what happens usually is that what you get is then that you're going to need some new investors to get into the market. And these kind of new investors uh, cannot be the same smart money again. And so what usually happens is that the media gets into it and starts saying, you've got to buy this. And then you get traders in who believe, they believe that they know what the value of the asset is, but they really don't. So they're called noise traders. Mm -hmm. and, once, and that means laymen usually, right? Yes. Uh, once laymen get into the market, then all of a sudden the frenzy really starts and greed and enthusiasm and whatnot. And then you get this usually sort of exponential um, um, setting of the valuation of the asset relative to the fundamental value. So, it, so it's being traded for a lot more than what it's worth. Then you get this newer paradigm that just couldn't go wrong, and then eventually the market crashes. You get a, bear, a bull trap, and then the market crashes. Anyway, the point mm -hmm. I'm trying to make here is that there is a discrepancy between well-informed traders and not so well-informed traders. Right? And sometimes you can even get a rational investor to say, or a smart money could actually re-enter the market. But only, and he will re-enter the market, it might even be rational for him to do so, under the, the assumption that there is a greater fool out there that will take off his asset later, then he's, gonna make the, then he's gonna make the dividend in between. He might earn some social capital also by just being part of this, so that, that may be worth he something. Might. Hmm? Yeah, that might be worth something, but hmm? usually he's just in it for the money. Yes. And no, basically, so he'll actually, a rational agent might actually mm -hmm. uh, entertain the idea of getting back into the market under the assumption that there is a greater fool out there that will take it off his hands. Nice. And that, that's called the greater fool theory for bubble formation. The greater what? The greater fool the theory. The greater fool theory. Right? Nice. So you have a rational <laughs> investor. He'll re-enter the market only under the assumption, and it's rational for him to do so, assuming there's a greater fool out there, he'll take it off. All right. Now, an interesting thing about all this is that whether you enter or not enter the market is acutely sensitive to what sort of information you have available. Because that that's what we actually want to go. This is, all has to be about information. That's in right. So <laughs> basically, that's the reason why I dubbed the center the Center for Information and Bubble Studies. Because information is key when you have to invest. Yes. And we can actually find bubbles in other markets than financial markets because it's a matter of what sort of information is available. So let me give you a couple of examples mm -hmm. on that. Now, um, we are assuming that the liquid means that we are talking about is money. Money. Mm -hmm. And the kind of money that we are talking about is either, either cash money or credit mm -hmm. or debt. Right. All right. So during the uh, subprime crisis in the US, a lot of the crisis was actually a result of fact people packing debt in different ways and selling yes. that off. Yes. And so debt is actually a very liquid mean, surprisingly enough, but it actually is. Now, think about you as an investor on social media, say. Every upvote, every like, every comment, every selfie, every emoji that you place on a post, or every retweet that you make on Twitter could actually be understood, understood as your opinion investment. As a liquid mean now. Well, or yeah. So upvotes, likes, comments, selfies, all the gestures that we have on social media platforms are actually liquid means that you could use to invest your opinion in a blog post that you find interesting, in a, in a, in a, in a, in a retweet, or in a tweet that you will retweet, um, mm -hmm. in a uh, Facebook posting that you'll upvote. 
mm -hmm. uh, in a YouTube uh, video that you will download and so forth. So, forth so help forth. me think about this. So when I, when I want to buy an expensive tulip, I actually have to pay money. Yeah. But when I take selfies, that doesn't really take a lot of my own assets away from me, right? right. So it must be some kind of other capital yeah. I'm investing. Because the only asset that, the only, the asset that everybody is after on, on social media and in the information age is other people's attention. Other people's attention, yes, not my own. I, I, I see. That's I'm, right. Ah. And, and so, okay. already back in 1971, Nobel Prize laureate Herbert Simon, yes. psychologist, yes. who's been extremely influential in artificial intelligence yes, and information theory yes. and, else, and elsewhere, said that, or projected, or already came up with the idea that if attention is an asset, then what, how do you allocate people's attention? Well, you get them to consume information. Right, because yes. when you consume information, your attention is allocated, right? Yes. Okay, so that means all of a sudden that inf information is a very, very, very uh, important commodity Good. because you use that to allocate other people's attention. Now, if you look at the way in which social media platforms are working, what they want is to allocate people's attention. They use information to do that. Information generates traffic. Traffic is money, influence, power, respect, what have you. Mm -hmm. So the more information that you can mm -hmm. allocate, or actually the more attention you can allocate using information, then all of a sudden you're turning information into a very, very, very valuable, valuable commodity. And since attention is scarce, because there's only that much attention that you can allocate, there's only 24 hours in a day, and you can only do more or less one thing at once, then once you allocate it, you got it. So the question is, how do you use information to allocate people's attention and by allocating people's attention you are generating everything from traffic and traffic in and by itself on social media say is equal to money and, and if you're doing it in politics political capital and if you're doing it in status then status economics etc uh, etc et so a lot of so basically in the information age Information is extremely valuable because you can use it to allocate other people's attention, and other people's attention in the end is traffic, and traffic is influence, power, money, et cetera, et cetera. So that means, would there be investors out there, or traders in information, or attention merchants, if you wish, who could actually speculate as to what sort of information people are willing to consume, and in the meantime, you get their attention? Is, are there such yes. things? Yes. And the question, the answer is obviously yes. That seems to be in much a way the currency of the Trump campaign was to allocate people's attention by feeding them information that took up their attention independently of whether that information is true. And so here's the issue in the information age. Whatever is viral is not necessarily true, and whatever is true is not necessarily viral. Now, if you're just a little bit of an enlightenment person, you, that would be disconcerting to you, right? The information, so put it another way, truth is not necessarily viral. No, but, but, but fake news might be. But that's not new, right? That, that, what no. or, or let, help me understand what is the, how does, this seems to have been always been true, uh, that, 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 uh, that, yeah, that sure. truth is not necessarily viral. Right. It has other qualities that, that inside certain frameworks of, uh, of discourse, truth seems to have some positive, I mean, it seems to survive very well inside physics, for instance, right? right. But it, it's, not very, it's not very interesting for buying tulips. So, um, but help me understand what is new here about, about the information society or the digital society. Everybody has more or less access now. So everybody, ha everybody has a bullhorn to the world. That's a new thing. We haven't seen that one before. Usually, 
enlightening or, for that matter, also discrediting the public with information has been something that established media had the sort of the monopoly on. Now everybody has a profile online, they have access to information online, et cetera, et cetera. And all of a sudden, everybody has access to allocating other people's attention using information. Oh, and by the way, at light speed and potentially globally. And that's exactly the reason why the World Economic Forum in 2016 took massive digital misinformation as a global challenge on par with food security, uh, climate change, and a host of other global challenges. Now misinformation is actually being counted as a global challenge because it can be used for cyber attacks, it could be used for terrorism, and as they say, it's a threat to the failure of global governance. And Good. So there are many, many things here that I really want to talk about because I'm fetishizing the Enlightenment as much as, as you probably are. Uh, so, so we are, we are on, on the same side here, um, epistemologically and probably ideologically. Uh, so so again, the, I, I think you said it already, but let's just let's say it again slowly. So the new thing is not the existence of misinformation, nor the, nor, the, nor the ease with which certain agents are able to perpetuate, spread, or fabricate misinformation. Well, I mean, I think it's fair to say that a lot more, a lot more people now have access to the information superhighways ever since we got everything from the, from the internet to social media, right? Because before, there was at least a tendency for the fact that although, of course, you could spread information, you were going to have to read, you, have to, you, you would have to write a column for a paper and then somebody would have to, you know, either disagree or disagree. Yeah, but once I have that column, or once I, I mean, I mean both, both, both Hitler and Churchill understood the, the, the power of, of, of having the monopoly on the radio. Because, because that was a brilliant example of a, of a one-way communication that right. was very, very tightly controlled, I agree. which could be used both for information and sure. misinformation. Yeah. And that's what they did. Yes. But now, of course, there's a lot more merchants out there. You are, in principle, a merchant, too. Exactly. That must be the new thing. That's that everybody new thing. is now a merchant. Everybody has access. Everybody has a bullhorn through the world. Everybody is an intention merchant, potentially. But that potentially might actually be better than what we had before, right? It depends on who has the bullhorn. Depends on who has the megaphone. That's one. That's so one now thing. we just need to ensure that the good and wise philosopher king keeps the megaphone yeah, and built yeah, the Republic yeah, of Plato. That, you and see how that went. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> that's okay. one thing. Yes. And that, that's, so that's one thing, right? So everybody was a philosopher king, God forbid, because uh, then we would probably get nowhere, but be that as it may. Um, the other issue is, of course, that although we all have access to the information superhighway, and we all have access, we all have a bullhorn, just because we all have a bullhorn does not entail that everybody can allocate the same amount of attention. No. So the story is usually this, namely that since everybody has access to, uh, to the social media and to the internet and whatnot, then information has become democratized somehow, mm -hmm. or knowledge has been become that, democratized. That's a positive word still, yeah, that, so we that like is that. A, If that was really true, because that would, and that would the, the precondition for that would be that attention allocation follows a normal distribution. Insofar as to say that the bulk of us have more or less the same uh, possibility of allocating other people's attention. That is not the case. Oh, very nice. Okay, yeah. That is ex not the case. Ex expand on that. That's not the case. Because allocation of, of other people's attention on the web does not follow a, a normal distribution such that the bulk of us have more or less the same possibility of allocating other people's information. Other people's attention. I guess it's a power law. It's a power law. It's a it's a strong power law. So if you look, can at we measure this? I mean, I, I understand what measured. this means. This has and been measured more than once. I mean, there are a couple of books out there. There's the myth of digital democracy. There's a couple of books that have been looking into this. And I guess we need to explain power law for 
person. It basically means that uh, if you look at, 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 you know, so allocation on the y-axis and um, numbers of persons on the y-axis, on the x-axis, it turns out that there's a couple of players, not many, that basically sit with every or most of the bulk of, of allocation of or the bulk of uh, attention, and then everybody has to fight for whatever is left out in the tail of this particular distribution. So it's it, it, it's it's a curve that falls downwards very very quickly and then peters out and is yeah, yeah, yeah. almost and flat. So <laughs> most people are at the tail and That's very right. few are at the uh, whatever the opposite of a tail is at the peak. At the peak, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. and so basically, if you look at the big attention merchant allocators on social media platforms, you can name them easily, right? So that will be Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and as a search engine, Google. Those four or five are, players okay, sit with the bulk of the traffic online. Of the alloc and, they, and they have the editorial uh, power over allocating the attention. Exactly. They don't produce that much, inf much information, but that doesn't really make a difference. Doesn't make a difference. Because but in the meantime, they're allocating people's attention, right? And there are very few players who are basically sitting with the bulk of the traffic, and everybody else has to fight for whatever is left out there mm -hmm. in the tail of this particular distribution. Mm -hmm. Now, that's not, that has nothing to do with everybody potentially allocating the same amount of information or al allocating the same amount of attention. Some attention merchants have a lot more pull than everybody else. Yes. All right? And it tends to be such that the big get even bigger and everybody else doesn't get it, doesn't stand a standard check. It's like with the global economic situation. 1% or 50% of all ads, and then the 99 have to fight for whatever the remaining 50%. So, and, and that was actually, pre I guess, predicted by a simple model called preferential attachment or yeah. something, that, that a, a power, power law would be the logical consequence right, exactly. of having a distributed, uh, many, many agents individually allocating their attention. Then a power law is the expected result, and you say that we can also measure this. That's that. exactly what happens. Mm -hmm. and, and on top of that, of course, the big tend to get bigger, so you can also see that in practice, like Facebook buys Instagram, Google buys YouTube, and so the ones who actually, actually already have a lot get even more. Mm -hmm. And so this, so this, gets, this actually happens on, um, this happens on the macroscopic level, but it's also the same on user level. So some individual users have a lot of pull. I mean, they have a lot of it. They, have, they are allocating a lot of attention. PewDiePie. Huh? PewDiePie. For my, instance. I, I know, yeah. All I know about social media, I know through my children. Well, there you yeah. go. <laughs> so if I ask you, who is the one with the most followers on all social media, all, all social media platforms? I would guess PewDiePie, that's certainly true for YouTube. I have no idea about Twitter, well, for instance. If you take Facebook, Donald? YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, and the others, the ones who have, the, the person on this planet who have most followers on social media. Tell me, I have no idea. Trump. Taylor, Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift. I, has I don't even know if I would have preferred Trump as an answer. Well, well, well Trump okay. is way down there. He's, he's, he's much further down Taylor on the Swift. tail. But of course, uh, but Taylor Swift, right? So, and Cristiano Ronaldo is number two. Um, <laughs> and then I forget exactly, but then uh, Katy Perry, Rihanna, and a, per a third person. And these are musicians and soccer players. Yeah, musicians and yes. soccer players, they mm -hmm. basically have, they're allocating... And football players for our European audience. Uh, exactly. So they're basically allocating <laughs> huge amounts of attention. Mm -hmm. And everybody else has to fight for whatever is left mm -hmm. out in the tail. So if you look at it from that perspective, if you look at the entertainment industry, you have this power distribution. If you look at it in the politics, you'll have a similar power distribution. Yeah. And so just because you have a bullhorn doesn't mean that you're getting no. heard. And of course, one who was very good at playing this particular game, because there is then no such thing as bad publicity. There is something called allocation attention. Mm -hmm. And that seems to be the mm -hmm. currency of the Trump campaign, namely that you could f send out tweets uh, which didn't necessarily have to be true, but in the meantime, you allocated people's attention. Yeah. 
And there's a very, very interesting new study that just came out uh, at the start of March 2017 that went to show, Columbia Journalism Review, they went to show, they said, look, it might be said that fake news and Russian hacking had something to do um, with the U.S. election, but it turns out to be the case that they did a very detailed study that uh, the, ex the alt-right mm -hmm. uh, press, mm -hmm. uh, and not necessarily established press, but you know, starting, at a st starting around Breitbart, mm -hmm. yeah, they were actually able to create a closed ecosystem that, told, that, that spoke to the, to the Trumpian electorate while, here comes it, while they were actually setting the agenda for the mass media. Right? So you had to worry about Hillary Clinton's emails, uh, scandals about this and that, etc. And they were actually able to proliferate that particular, that particular information out into the broader media picture, such that CNN, ABC, MSNBC, whatever, actually had to take a lot of their agenda. And the interesting thing about it was that Breitbart wasn't just feeding people fake news. And the reason for that is that the morning strategy is not just to pe feed people a falsity. What you want to do is you want to mix truth and falsity in a proper cocktail yes. such that on one hand that you can actually take your political position and hang it on some hook which is fact. And then narratives, narratives and partisanship will take care of the rest. So even if it turned out that some of the information that you get is false, you still have some truth to pin your political, yes. your political position yes. on, yes. and then your partisanship, and what Breitbart and the rest, uh, of the rest of this closed ecosystem were, were very good at feeding people, were coherent world pictures, mm -hmm. right? So if but it is true that, um, that when you hacked John Podesta's email, so the campaign manager of Hillary Clinton, and there was this talk about pizza, mm -hmm. right? Pizzagate. Pizzagate. Then at least there was talk about pizza, so that much is true. And then conspiracy theory and coherent narratives and partisanship mm -hmm. will all of a sudden create hashtag Pizzagate, but which basically was a falsehood, uh, at least for the most part of it. But there was still some truth to some of it. Yeah. Right? And so that's basically a winning strategy, not to feed people just the completely false narratives, but feed them something which is true in part, and then let coherent world pictures and partisanship take care of the rest for people to swing them. But what else should they have done? No, I no, mean, no, they, they were up against a, a, a basically an, an old school monopoly of, 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 of attention grabbing. From, from, sure. from the established media. So the, so the only thing that can happen, conspiracy or not, I mean, it, it's not even necessary to have, to have an, orga, an orchestrated con campaign for doing this. Let me put this, why is this not a beautiful story, right? The, the only reason for this not being a beautiful I'll story, I guess, is, is that you and I lost, because when... No, I'll tell, you why, it's not a I'll yes. tell you why it's not a beautiful story, because ever since the enlightenment that you were alluding to before, yes. we are assuming that even though we are suckers for truth, because why are we suckers for truth? Because truth and truthful information is the best basis that we know of for deliberation, decision, and action. And if we assume that we want to be rational and that we are rational to a certain extent, then fake news and false information is not the best basis on which you're going to place your decisions. No, but nobody would agree to that. So that's sort of a vacuous. I mean, nobody would say sure, that. Sure, but, but the problem is that there was a lot of misinformation, fake news, shitstorms and Twitter stories that had no truth to them or very little that actually turned out to be pretty inferential in the both in the election of Brexit, both in the Brexit campaign and in the, U and, and the Trump campaign. And let me tell you one more thing. You know, 
again, back to the Enlightenment. Now, our understanding of democracy, right, mm -hmm. of modern democracy, mm -hmm. is sort of born out of the Enlightenment age. Mm -hmm. Of Absolutely. course, you can, you, can, you can say that back in ancient Greek, they had a kind of democracy, but then again, it, it, it really it, wasn't. It's because just one generation. It's very short. And then it was very over. short, one, and two, it was, only, uh, it was only elderly men who could vote, no women, no children, no mm -hmm. slaves. So mm -hmm. it had really very little. Mm -hmm. It was more like an oligarchy, mm -hmm. oligarchy of anything. Absolutely. So, um, so what I'm saying is that out of the Enlightenment, we get this idea that if you get people, give people more information, also riding on the backdrop of the dark middle ages, set information free and people will make better decisions, everything else being equal. Now, the consequence that we have of the information age is you have information in abundance. And yes. the question is then, how do you get people to read the kind of information and thereby allocate their attention mm -hmm. to things that you find either politically opportune and whatnot, just to say that even Francis Bacon said that knowledge in and by itself is power. Mm -hmm. Today, information in, the in and by itself is power, mm -hmm. but the difference is, between <laughs> now and Bacon, is that information doesn't have to be true. Absolutely. No, no. But it's still, yep. it's still mm -hmm. power. So just, to say, so just to say that uh, one of the paradoxes of the information is, is, is on, on one hand, we have information in abundance. And information in abundance should actually, in principle, lead people to take, make better decisions, assuming that they can curate the information properly. The problem is, in the meantime, that it's very hard to curate very big chunks of information. What we usually do is we'll read the sources that are in our agreement with our political inclinations up front yes. independently. Yes. And that only leads to more polarization. And one of the things that we do know about Western democracies is that they're acutely sensitive to extreme polarization, because that will lead from everything from radicalism on one hand to terrorism on and the it's other. It's completely consistent with our moral psychology. This is exactly how we humans are. We are we are inherently tribal. Right. So so and 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 and, and you can stimulate that tribalism severely. Yeah. So that, that's something that, that 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 I would like to to to, to understand better. Right? It seems that the tribality that is built into the tribalism that's built into our moral psychology for probably very good evolutionary reasons seems to have now suddenly found it's sort of the, the perfect storm of dissemination yeah. uh, through the internet. And th this is something I don't really know what to do about. Um, but I, I want to push back just once on the narrative, because uh, on the fake news narrative, because it's, it's something I would very much like to believe. On the other hand, I, I'm, I'm constantly skeptical of my own biases. So the fact that we're right now explaining the fake news narrative with an example that so narrowly tracks our own ideological biases in the sense that this is, I mean, the only reason Trump can have won is by, a, by an orchestrated campaign of fake news, possibly with an involvement of Putin. That, that, that sounds so self-serving. No, I that, agree with that. That, that flatters our own pre, uh, preconceptions but, so much that I... But I, I think that's too simple, simplistic a picture, okay? Fine. It's way too simplistic. Fine. I mean, fake news is just one... Uh, what should we say, tool that you can use for information manipulation. And it's all the way out there in the tale where if, if fake news, if it is, you have to read it accordingly, it's okay. basically false. Yeah. And, 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 between and, and, and that everybody, everybody and in, seems to know that. Right? Right. Everybody in between seems that and truth, right? So there's fake news and falsity in one hand, then there's truth in the other. Yes. And between there, there's a whole continuum of various tools that you could use. You could frame the information in particular ways. You could take opportune uh, facts and use them and forget about the rest. 
You can um, use polarization mechanisms so people will only look for mm -hmm. this echo chambering mm -hmm. information. There's a million different ways in which you can manipulate with information in various degrees of truth or falsity, mixing truth and Good. falsity, and also by basically tabbing into, and those are the things that we are studying very intensively at the Center for Information and Bubble Studies, phenomena like polarization, echo chambering, bandwagon yes. effects, yes. Uh, lemming effects, cascading effects, and all those information-born or information-driven social psychological phenomena that will swing people in one way or the other. Mm -hmm. So there's a whole continuum of ways mm -hmm. in which mm -hmm. you can use information, uh, mixing truth and falsity, and get people to run along with it in, a various, in various different strategies that you can impose for getting people to swing one way or the other. Yes. So, so that's, that's more of the picture where you just look at the information part. And, on top of, and then build on top of that, you can talk about uh, different um, demographics. Some are rich, some are poor, some are elite, some are not, etc. There's a whole, there's a very complex mosaic that feeds into the, the reason why Trump was elected president, the reason why the UK left Brexit, the reason why populism is on the rise in Europe, etc., etc. And we yeah, are just I, looking at some of these. And I see. I the see. Opinion, good, good. And the opinion bubbles that it, comes along with fine, it. Fine. But because even the cognitively very limited toolbox of, say, Marxism uh, suffices to explain Trump or, Certainly. or would, have, would have sufficed no, are, to explain at the Sanders. Nut, right. Okay, good. I mean, so basically this is just what we are looking at is we are looking at the nuts, on the nuts and bolts of these information-driven phenomena mm -hmm. that in many Fine. ways are uh, responsible for some of the action, deliberation, mm -hmm. decision that we use on a daily basis, everything from deciding which chess freezer to have next uh, to who should be in the office in the White House. And, and what I found really useful uh, is already this idea that it's actually not the content of the fake news that's interesting, it's the fact that the fake news uh, uh, in itself grabs attention. That's that right. Because that's the currency that we, that Th we want that's to That's the currency, to, right? And so, uh, and, what f and, and again, if, if you look at uh, the development, developmental trajectory of Twitter storms, say, then usually they go like this, and then they're silent. Yes. Okay. Now, what you can use fake news for, and so you go like this, right? So you, so the area under that particular curve is an expression of how much attention you have allocated. And it's a very narrow peak. It's a very narrow peak. Mm -hmm. Now, what you can use fake news for is to extend uh, the peaks afterwards, right? So you can, you can use fake news to ride on the back of the Pizzagate story, to ride on the back on the various stories, just to say, that you can that on the backdrop of a Twitter storm, you can actually feed the chamber more information and allocate more attention that way around. So that's just one. Uh -huh. But uh -huh. it but you can it doesn't have necessarily have to be fake news. It could also be a truth. It could even be true news. Right. Yes. So, yes. so it's just to say that there are various different ways in which you can allocate people's attention. Sometimes with fake news, sometimes with truth, sometimes with framing, sometimes with this, sometimes with okay. that. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. I want to talk about what we can do in just a minute. But but just before we get there. Uh, one one other pet topic for me. So the the um, um, we on the what should we call this academic left have in some sense been really good for the last 100 years to to sort of uh, remove ourselves from the idea of truth to be the to, to be something of value. Right? There's a, there's an entire school from Kant via Adorno, Marcuse, uh, lots of French guys, and maybe ending in in Rorty that 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 removed. Uh, the mode of discourse of several disciplines in the academia from a focus on um, stuffy enlightenment values that, that you and I seem to represent. 
that's true. Is, that, is this our fault? No, I mean, look, uh, if, you had, if you had asked Kant, Rousseau, and the rest of the Enlightenment company what would happen if you gave people more information, mm-hmm. and the result would be that they would be more navel-gazing, gazing, mm-hmm. that they would be more polarized than mm-hmm. probably we have seen in a long time, uh, that status economics is on the rise, that... Um, Attention economics is on the rise, and maybe they would have dreamt themselves back to the dark Middle Ages that they were uh, 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 yes, to use yes. information to actually leave, right? So, no, but so I, I, I'm more concerned with with telling telling I don't know Foucault or Derrida that that there will actually one generation from now there will be somebody who takes the idea that truth doesn't exist, there's only narrative, yeah. and actually wins an election yeah. using your tools yeah, sure. because people who are who are not. Uh, 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 cognitively disciplined or intellectually honest will be much better at wielding tools of misinformation. Yeah, but you know, than, than I, I, yeah, yeah, I can see where you where you go with that. I have to say though, I, I I don't really buy that premise, and the reason is that it's not like somebody like Trump or Nigel Farage, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, just don't say that there is no such thing as truth. That's not what they're saying, but they cherry pick what they'll use. So it's not like they are saying, well, you know, they're not okay. like they're saying there is no such thing as truth. So I can tell people whatever. No, that's not the case. Well, rather, what they would be saying is to say, look, I'm going to cherry pick the facts so they'll fit my narrative and mm-hmm. get pe- and sell people a coherent picture of the world in part based on truth, in part mm-hmm. based on falsity. But at least I'm selling a coherent story. Okay, and so. And so it's it's not radical skepticism. That Trump is not a radical skepticism. A little Nigel Farage isn't radical skepticism. He might not even be a relativist by any reasonable means either. He's just cherry picking the mm-hmm. facts to his political agenda and opportune for his political narratives. That's what he's doing. And so and so it's not it's not either or. I mean, realize, of course, if you were a radical skepticist, it would be pretty hard to sit here having this conversation. That's what oh, I would say to the radical skepticism, <laughs> so in particular so because technology makes this all work. <laughs> so, yes. so there you have right, it, right? right? So there is a limit as to how much you can do in terms of getting reliable inquiry off the ground if you <coughs> buy into radical skepticism. Mm-hmm. The same goes for radical relativism, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Okay. And in between complete truth and complete falsity uh, and interpretations and whatnot, even uh, Donald Trump would agree to the fact that if he's sitting at the White House at the, in the Oval Office, he's probably sitting there. He's not being fooled by the Cartesian demon, no? Aha, uh-huh, very nice. Yes, uh, prob- yeah, actually, <laughs> he may never have read Foucault or Derrida. Or yeah, or uh, Descartes yes, for that yes, matter, you know. Descartes, yes. so. uh, okay, uh-huh. very good. So, um, so let's leave, the politics is cheap, so let's, let's right. leave that and, 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 and try to see what we can actually do about this. So is there, are, are there ways we can, so being now aware of the fact that the way we as individuals and as groups and as nations and societies and, and institutions yeah. uh, curate our information diet. Yeah. Um, let, let's just assume that as a given now, and this has consequences. Right. So let's assume that as a given, what can we do? Can okay. we become operational or practical? Yeah, so that's a very good question. And, and that's one of the things that we are looking into at the center, obviously. But the way in which we're doing that is to say, okay, let's take some of uh, the social psychological phenomena that we know of are actually sometimes derailing our r- rationality, mm-hmm. right? So that could be uh, pluralistic ignorance, majority mistakes. So I don't believe that phi, but I wrongfully believe that everybody else or the majority believes not phi. Oh, t- t- tell us about common knowledge and pluralistic, okay, pluralistic ignorance. Okay, so, so, so usually when we, uh, when we make, when we del- deliberate, decide and act in concert with others, a very good basis for that would be what is common knowledge between us, right? So not only that I know that I know P, 
and I know that you know P, and you know that I know P, that I know that you know P, that you know that I know. Right? So on every infinite level, uh, on a, there's complete transparency as to what we know between us. I know something, and I also know that you know the same thing. And, and vice versa. And then for every, inf for every other level, as far as you want to go, we can keep swapping what we know and what's common knowledge between us. Right. So, so that's extremely important if you have to coordinate. Right? So this, this is common knowledge, it's and common that's knowledge. not the same as, as what is it, mutual knowledge? Mutual knowledge is the same thing. So it's a different thing. Right? So mutual knowledge means that I know P and that you know P, but not that I know that you know that you know that so I know. So can we find an example? I know that the earth is round, and I assume you know the same thing. Uh, but unless I we talked about it, or unless we talked about it, we might not, unless, of course, now. But isn't, th isn't that common knowledge? Can't I assume that you know that the well, earth is round? Well, I mean, we, have to, we might have to establish it, right? So, so there would be things that, that, that could be other things, right? So but I could... But, uh, so but just, given, just, just given your... Given okay, what so I know I, about so your education. Look, so I might know that there, are eight, that there are 12 million people in New York City. Yeah, I don't you, know that. You might also know that. Suppose, or take Good. Berlin. Fine. Or any other city that we apparently know, but we might not know... I might not know that you know it, nor that you know that I know and it. And that is mutual knowledge. That's mutual knowledge. Round, roundness of the Earth is common knowledge. Right. A number of population that, could be, that would be population common knowledge by now, right? Yes. Population of New York might be mutual knowledge. Yeah, that's I right. certainly can't assume that you know it. No, exactly. Thank but you. although I might know and you might know separately, mm -hmm. okay? Good. Absolutely. And then of course there's distributed knowledge, right? Where the knowledge of a proposition is sort of pieced together by different things. So that's like wisdom of crowds type of thing is the ah. extreme example ah. of, of distributed knowledge. So right? you and I might together be able to piece together. We I might be know. wiser than the one that, the two, that each one of us are singularly. We might be able to piece together all the 11 players on some particularly important football team. Right, okay. exactly. That right. is distributed knowledge. Yeah, so hmm? we're piecing it together together, hmm? but we don't, know, we don't know the complete set of players, either one of us. But together we all know both. Good. All right. So, so that's distributed knowledge. Mm -hmm. right? Common knowledge is very nice because common knowledge is a very good basis to coordinate. It's going to be hard at a traffic light if it's not common knowledge among us that red means stop. Mm -hmm. right? <laughs> so, mm -hmm. Fine. So, and so common knowledge is usually a very, very important tool for us when we have to talk about norms, when we have to talk about behavioral patterns, et cetera, et cetera. Society building. Society building mm -hmm. is based in no small part mm -hmm. on what we take common knowledge mm -hmm. to be. Okay. Now, there is an there is evil cousin to common knowledge. Mm -hmm. uh, that evil cousin is called pluralistic ignorance. Very nice. And pluralistic ignorance basically means that I believe something, but I wrongfully believe that either everybody else or the majority of everybody else believes something else. Let me give you an example. We just did a big survey along with the Danish Children's Council pertaining to people's attitudes or 15-year-old people's attitudes towards cyberbullying. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're a perpetrator or a victim perpetrator, then you don't think yourself that it's okay to cyberbully, but you wrongfully believe that your classmates and, in particular, your friends are much more acceptable towards cyberbullying than you are yourself. You you think that as a victim or as a perpetrator? As a per well, if you are talking about being a victim or victim perpetrator, right? Well, excuse me, if you're talking about being yeah. You have been a victim of, of cyberbullying, then you don't. But if you are a perpetrator or a victim perpetrator, right? What is a victim perpetrator? That's one who has been the victim of cyberbullying, but also conducted it. I see. As opposed mm -hmm. to just one who has perpetrated it. Good. Uh, clearly, the victims don't think it's cool in either way. Nope. But victim perpetrators, so the conjunction victim mm -hmm. and perpetrator, uh -huh. and uh, perpetrators, there seems to be a robust pattern. They don't think it's okay to cyberbully themselves, but they wrongfully believe that 
Oh. The majority of their friends and classmates think it's much more okay than it is that they find it themselves. So, so everybody else thinks P, I know not P. Yeah, you or believe not P. You I don't have to I know, know it, but well. believe, right? Yeah. So you believe that P, and you believe that everybody different from yourself believes not P. And that is pluralistic ignorance. That's called pluralistic it's ignorance. It's a false, no, it's a, no. It's a majority it? mistake. It's a majority mistake. It's okay. basically a majority mm -hmm. mistake. And majority mistakes are nasty, because you can coordinate on majority mistakes also, because you believe something, and you wrongfully believe that everybody else believes something else. And so basically what you can get out of this whole business is that you can get people to collectively to subscribe to a norm that they privately reject. Ah, beautiful. Yes. Very, very mm. disconcerting phenomenon. Absolutely. And Absolutely. the basic idea is that you have a wrong idea of the distribution of standpoints in your group or in your uh, immediate surroundings. So you believe that they believe something else and you believe. So elections seem to be very good control mechanisms for that. For instance, right? So elections seem to be co good control mechanisms for it, but of course also that it's, it's a massive tool for manipulation. And let me give you an example uh -huh. of that. So I teach logic. Uh -huh. and I Good old-fashioned, like I know it, right. with mu's and sigma's and, and everything. All right. Right. And so, mm -hmm. uh, I might, so I teach Mondays and Wednesdays. Mm -hmm. So Monday I might give my students a homework assignment for them to solve for Wednesday, right? Mm -hmm. okay, that happens. Now come Wednesday, I'm not really interested in you know, going through that exercise. But of course, if I tell them, we're not going to go through the exercise, we're just going to continue, there's a lot of sunk costs for them because they use Monday afternoon and Tuesday to try to solve this problem. And come Wednesday, I don't want to go through it with them, right? So if I tell them that, they're probably going to get angry. But I can manipulate them to give me the right answer. Namely, I'll ask my students, what do you think was difficult with Monday's exercise? And you know how they react? Precisely as you do now. Because in the way, very way I frame the question, I'm, at, I'm saying it was difficult. So if I'm in doubt as to whether or not I got it right, and I don't have more information than was on my sheet of paper, then what I will do is I will look at my, I will look at my friend next to me, discreetly see what my friend has been saying. But then my, if my friend is as doubtful as to whether they got it right or not, they're not going to flag that they didn't know it. They're basically going to say nothing. So I receive a signal from them that they didn't have a problem because otherwise they would have said. And then all of a sudden you get this pluralistic ignorance to go through the entire class. Everybody thought it was extremely difficult, but they wrongfully believed that everybody else believed that it wasn't because they didn't flag their hands. And then I look over and people will go, oh, nobody had problems with yesterday's <laughs> exercise. I'll just continue. So you correctly infer that I never did my logic homework when I was a bachelor's well, student. Well, you could, you could say <laughs> yes, that. Yes, right. yes, yes. <laughs> okay, so what's the problem? The problem is the signal that is tacitly being elicited by every student, namely that since they don't say anything, you conclude that they didn't have a problem. And so basically the problem is that I'm asking my students to orientate themselves towards each other before they answer the question. Mm -hmm. Now if I just remove the act of orientation, so they don't force to look at each other, then I will say, well, if nobody is, seems to have any problems, I'll just say, okay, nobody had problems yesterday, let's just continue. Now if I want my <laughs> students to give an answer, I'll, I'll frame the question differently. I'll say, what do you think other previous students had for problems with yesterday's exercise? And then all of a sudden it doesn't concern them, so they don't have to look at each other, they don't need this, they don't, they're not getting oh. the signals, and then everybody will go, I thought that this particular thing or other students would have thought such and so. You understand what I'm saying? Absolutely. So basically, you can manipulate using pluralistic ignorance yes. 
or get it to spread or not to spread. Yes. And so it's an extremely powerful mean. And if you can get everybody to believe that a certain norm is the one to follow, even if everybody singularly believes that it's not, you've got yourself a very potential game. Mm -hmm. Now, you were asking about what do you do about it. Yes. What turns out to be the case is that if, that if you tell people you cannot cyber bully or you cannot drink, that's not going to happen. Paternalism doesn't work. So what you will do instead, and what turns out to work is, if you inform people of the dynamic, the structure and the dynamics of some of these social psychological phenomena, then that in and by itself might be a preventive measure for them to fall yes. into a majority yes. mistake another time. So what we're basically doing is to understand the mathematics of uh, these social psychological phenomena as a basis for prevention strategies or intervention strategies for people not to fall in again. That goes analog in the analog world and it certainly also works Absolutely. in the digital yeah. world. This is, this is a topic that I just discovered a few years ago, social psychology. In, immensely fascinating. Right, and so it's amenable to um, everything from mathematics to computer implementations. Yes. Absolutely. That's, uh, yeah. So that's what Great we're doing stuff. at the center. And all this feeds into either bursting bubbles or preventing them from happening whether we're talking opinion bubbles on one hand or political status bubbles, et cetera, on the other. I guess we need to mention the filter bubble, which in some sense placed some of this uh, in the digital world in, in 2011. There's yeah. a famous yeah. book by Eli Pariser. Eli Pariser, yes. And it certainly, it certainly did take, uh, it, did certainly, it did allocate a lot of attention for, and for good reason. However, uh, stud, stu, studies tend to show, though, that it's less a pronounced phenomenon than what people think. That's what I wanted to hear. I, I've been evangelizing about this myself yeah. in yeah. 2011 and 12, yeah. and then I sort of became a bit tired of it because it seemed to be not as dramatic as I wanted it to make no, out to no, be. No, there's studies that tend to show that it's not quite as pronounced as what, what one would think. But may, maybe only because we're aware of it. I, don't know. I mean, I, I've been evangelizing about algorithms for many years, and then suddenly there was this single issue which spread like wildfire, right. and everybody, because because Journalists were concerned about this, certainly. so certainly you have this platform yeah, and can yeah, talk about it. Sure. And um, uh, that was quite an experience. And now everybody knows. So when I talk uh, many years ago, when I talked to people and said I do algorithms, they had a difficult time on distinguishing an algorithm from a logarithm. Right. But today everybody <laughs> knows, falsely knows, that I'm the one. Uh, curating the Facebook feed, right? right? Algorithms today means yeah. basically Speaking nefarious uh, news cura curation. Right. right. Speaking of which, um, as you know, that Facebook just uh, well will be launching uh, pertaining to the German election coming up uh, a way an app for your news feed. So if you get in your news feed a piece of information, you go, could that possibly be true? Mm -hmm. You can flag it. Mm -hmm. And they'll send it back to Facebook, and they will have PolitiFact or and other fact-checking institutions check whether or not it is so, and then th th throw it back into your news feed with, say, a disclaimer going disputable if they couldn't verify it. Say, so just to say that, and this is an important fact. Now, information is a source for enlightenment, but it has to be curated. Mm -hmm. If you, set it, if you whom, set it free, by whom? Yeah, but that's the issue. Except for you and me, right? The only person yeah, I trust right. yeah, to curate yeah. this is myself, and possibly you, since you now send so many virtue signals to yeah, me yeah, about, that's right, that's about right. being a yeah, magician. Just, why, just so we can sit in our echo chamber yes. together, right? Yes, that's, <laughs> that's where we are. So just to say that even the big players in the field are aware now that some sort of curation of information is required, because if you just assume a market fundamentalistic model of information, then you're going to get into these nasty issues of power laws, your fake news, allocation attention, et cetera, mm -hmm. et cetera, which does ever so often derail or otherwise 
pretty rational uh, Absolutely. I would be very surprised if Facebook got this right, because this is a thousands-year-old problem, right? Curious. I agree. So, so it would be very strange if the first attempt to do this sure. would, would, would work, and I, 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 and I assume this will, this will take a generation or something like and this. And while you're at it, realize one more thing. Facebook wants to get back into the Chinese market, and two th- in in an '09 they were oh, yes. Uh, yes. in '09 they were barred, yeah. But of course, the Chinese are saying, "Well, we might want to do that." But then again, we want to be able to control the newsfeed. Mm-hmm. So there you have it. Yep. <laughs> so on one end, but you have to realize one more thing though about all this, that every, there is the the other narrative that goes along is that everybody has access. Every time you have to become more democratic. Now we already showed that that's not quite the case, right? Because uh, you have to realize that if you look at the big players in attention economics online, it doesn't say anywhere that they have to stimulate democracy. No, absolutely it, not. It's not part of the business model. No. Uh, so, so you can, of course, say that they but should, but it's not, it's not part of their game, necessarily. Is this just history repeating? Because newspapers were intensely partisan and just lied there through their teeth a hundred years ago. They were, nobody would Im- assume that newspapers are supposed to be uh, reliable sources of information. And then there was a pretty big movement uh, where, where some kind of journalistic ethics was developed. And, and maybe this was a success or not, I don't know, but, but certainly the, the, the self-conceptualization of what a newspaper editorial is changed completely Certainly. during the last century. So is something like that hap- going to happen as well, or not because there is no monopoly? Th- there, is no, there is no institution that actually provides the information? That's probably what's going to happen, but what is still the case that uh, for, every, for every claim there's got to be checks and balances. Yes. Oh, thank you. Th- that's exactly what I, how I think about this, right? It's really not about controlling the person who, who puts the information in the mimetic space. It's about having checks and balances that then react to the inevitable false information that is going to spread through it. So, exactly. Ah. So now and, it's, that, it's and that means that for every user, for every user, checks and balances on every statement. So in, ma- in many ways, it also starts with, our, with ourselves, you know? So, so and, and the reason is basically that everything else being equal, if I have to deliberate to say I didn't act, I want information that I take to be pretty much as close to the truth as we can get. Mm-hmm. First, or if not truth, then probable, or possible, or reasonable, etc. And so from that perspective, information is acutely important to us in our daily workings. And it's not going to be any less. No. But we're still going to have to do checks and balances on it. Is, is, is the model of liberal democracy and the, and the uh, public sphere, Öffentlichkeit in Habermas, is that just dead now? Is there no longer a single public sphere or can we update that model? There are multiple public spheres. There are multiple public yeah, spheres I have a PhD that interact in, in various ways and access to these spheres is now mediated by lots of different actors and ourselves. Sure. And, and that means that the entire sort of, sort of what you would call information market has become severely more complex than we have seen ever before. Uh, with the with the possibilities that that brings along, but of course also with uh, disadvantages that brings along Absolutely. as well. Which we but, are and aware we have of. to realize though that we are in the middle of this big social informational experiment, right? I mean, it's only what uh, so it was 13 years ago since we got Facebook, yeah. and maybe 20 years, 25 years ago since we got the web. Yeah. I mean, this is a very new experience. What a time so to be alive! In the middle yes. of it. Absolutely, we're in the midst of trying to figure out exactly how we're going to behave in this new world.
Well, there is grounds for moderate optimism for liberal no, democracy. Yeah, certainly. And, but, of course, we have to work at it every day. It's not a law of nature that we got it. Hmm? So this was one of the aspects of democracy and information technology, namely access to the public sphere. Next week, I hope I can talk to Carsten Schumann about uh, digital elections and that aspect of democracy. Vincent, thanks a lot for coming. This was great. I learned a lot. Bye. Thanks for having me.